What an incredible uh, day we've had together so far. We've got about an hour and a half left. Mm -hmm. I promised them that 2 o'clock would be the drop dead we'll, moment. We'll be done. Okay. And, well, by that, I mean you would have to drop dead yes. at 2, yeah. not oh, them. Okay. They okay. will okay. leave. I just want to make so, sure. Okay. So uh, let's give Don our attention and welcome him back this afternoon. All right. Don. Thank you. Well, man, lunch was great. Thank you for all the conversation. It was wonderful. So let's um, dig into this a little bit. There's a play on words at the beginning of the book that purposefully creates some tension. And so I want to think it through it this way. If we are in a car or a building that we expect to be cooler than it is or warmer than it is, in this day and time, we'll look at someone and say, hey, check the thermostat. Because with the touch of a button, we can condition the atmosphere. That's why we call it air conditioning, right? But sometimes we'll ask someone, well, you know, you want to buy a horse or buy a car, or buy whatever. Well, what condition is it in? So condition just literally has something to do with is something meeting a preset specification? We want to know. And so if someone sets an, a thermostat, we'll even ask them, what did you set the thermostat at? You say 72. Well, it feels colder than that, or it feels warmer than that. But we understand the concept of conditioning. So when people would say, God's love is unconditional, right? I want to make sure you hear me say something, even if you have or have not read the book yet. I'm not here to get you to change your vocabulary. So if you keep saying that God's love is unconditional, I'm not going to quibble with you about that. I will make a couple observations. Number one, the Bible never says that. That's a thing. Uh, the other thing is, I think it might inadvertently tell part of the story, but not the whole story. Let me explain. When you think about when we say, like to our children, our grandchildren, a friend, I love you unconditionally, what we actually mean is your condition doesn't matter. That's what we mean. The condition you're in doesn't matter. We don't mean that our love is unconditional. What we mean is that I will love you no matter your condition. That's what we actually mean. So when God loves his people, well, whatever condition they're in, because is his condition changing? <laughs> no. So his condition isn't changing, but theirs goes up and down. So when God loves his people, whether they're doing well or not, it's their condition that isn't affecting his love. When Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Their condition is not impeding his love for them. So when we tell our kids or grandkids, I love you unconditionally, what we're remarking on is their condition. <laughs> they may have not uh, behaved as well as we think they should have, but here we're still there for you. Why? Because we love you regardless of your condition. You get where we're coming from? So that I'm not asking you to change your vocabulary. I'm really not. If you want to keep saying that God's love is unconditional, no problem. But what I'm suggesting is two things on the front end. 
First of all, the Bible doesn't describe his love that way. I went everywhere. There's thousands of references to God's love in the Scriptures. I went through every single one of them, and nowhere is it described that way. But our condition is described, and God keeps loving us no matter what our condition is. Now, here's the next piece of this that I think is important. There are conditions to God's love, and He spells them out in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, here's the thing, love is, and he gives two positives, remember, patient and kind. Then he gives eight negatives. It's not, it's not rude, not self-seeking, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So God says, if you're calling something love, but it's not patient or kind, well, then quit calling it love. Because it doesn't meet the what? The conditions. If you say you love someone, but you're keeping a record of all of their wrongs, man, you might want to rethink using love to describe what you feel for them. You remember he said that there's four always? You know, it always trusts, always protects, always perseveres, always hopes. Remember that? He said, so you got to understand that's me. God says, you got to bear in mind, you, my people fell off the wagon in Genesis 3, and I'm still hanging in there with you. So I must always, right? Remember the last thing it says, love never fails. In the original Greek, it'd probably be better to say love just never, like, disappears. So God actually has conditions that His love always meets. And he never unhooks from it. He never stops loving up to the standard that he set. Isn't that something? So you'll remember in Hosea, you you remember the story of Hosea and the big mess there and everything. And you come into Hosea chapter 11. And God says, you know, uh, out of Egypt I called my son, but the more I called to them, the more they ran from me. You know, my people were like bent on doing evil, you know. And he, and he asked the rhetorical question, will not swords flash in their cities? You know, will not the enemies crash their gates? You know, if they call out to the Most High, he won't even answer. And then he says, but how could I give you up, O Israel? How could I hand you over, O Ephraim? My heart, literally the Hebrew word there for my heart is aroused. It literally is the picture of a a live fish flopping around on a dock. He said, that's what my heart is like. All my compassion is on fire. He said, I can't give you up, for I am the Holy One of Israel. I am God and not man. Wow. So let me get this straight. You call, your people run. You command, they're bent on doing evil. And here's what ought to happen. But somehow you just can't give them up because you're holy and you're God. Huh. And he says, yeah, I'd love for you to be like me. Wow. Those are the conditions? Yes. So I want to take a few moments and talk about this together, okay? Let's look at this together. One of the things that has to shift in our thinking 
is going to be very, very difficult. So I want to say this ahead of time. This is one of the greatest challenges in uh, European and Western culture. This is not as big of a challenge in the global south as, or in the uh, uh, global east, but it is in the global west. And that's the difference between understanding life as an individual or as shared or what some people would call collective. Okay? So let's talk about it this way. In Western culture, individualism is an extreme value, and there's many reasons for that. If you stop and think of some of the abuses that happened under collective uh, 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 royal uh, uh, power, inherited royal power, one of the things that started coming about through philosophers like John Locke and people like that was individual rights. And you'll remember that the United States at several levels was built on this idea of protecting the rights of the what? The individual, right? So taken like that, we have built this into almost a near religious mantra. So we'll say things like, I, uh, I'm a self-made man, or I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, or, you know, no one gave that to me, I earned it, right? Uh, uh, how about the Lord's Supper? How many of you have, have found someone that during the Lord's Supper, they don't want anything to happen so that they can have their private time with God? Now, I want you to think how... how exactly opposite of communion that is. It's the exact opposite of God's intent. I mean like east and west. You want your own personal time with God. God wants you to observe the corporate body of Christ during that so you couldn't be further from God if you were shot out of a cannon in an opposite direction. But my, I've been in ministry for 36 years. And one of the biggest arguments I've got throughout the years is that they want everyone, no one interrupt my time with God. If you want personal communion time with God, don't do it at church. Do it somewhere else. You don't come to church to be an individual with individual time with God. You're trying to make church do too much for you. You're trying to make church do your whole religious life in like an hour and a half. You need to do your individual time alone with God. When you get to the body of Christ... Everything needs to be shared. That's the Christian way, period. Whatever else you're thinking is false doctrine, and it's not in Scripture. You say, well, that was blunt. I didn't say it. It's from Scripture. We are supposed to discern the body of Christ, not just the physical body of Christ, His body on earth. So this individual shared issue is a big deal. Now, let me tell you, take this a step further. And I want to talk about this in a way that is also somewhat uncomfortable, but I think you'll get the point. White Americans have more uh, of an advantage in an individualized culture than black and brown Americans. Here's why. We have a larger percentage of the population, and because of how this country was founded in a two-tiered uh, uh, class system with whites on top, then what happens is even the poorest white has a class system that is above the wealthiest black. Now, I want you to process this with me together. How many of you are old enough to remember soldiers coming home from the Vietnam War? Raise your hand. Okay. We didn't do a good job with that, did we? It was terrible. And many of us can remember it vividly. 
One of our former members, Buck Womble, who was a general, uh, served with Colin Powell. He said, that is one of the clearest examples of a national repentance I've ever seen. That we were never going to do that again. Whatever our faults, we're not doing that again. You come to Atlanta all day long, right at the top of the escalators, the busiest airport in the world is the USO uh, Welcome Center. It's manned all the time. And you know who the people are that are there the most? Vietnam vets. It's interesting to me. Some members of our church. He said it was like a national repentance. We were just so wrong to do that. But I want you to think about a couple things with me, okay? Let me tell you a couple stories, and I think this will help us to kind of unravel this. So as a country, we're thinking to ourselves, don't mistreat your soldiers again. Don't do that. Well, I was, how many of you remember Bill, Bill O'Reilly? Remember Bill O'Reilly used to be on television? Remember him? So he had a show, and he was doing the show one time in August of 2014, and he was talking about white privilege. And he was doing this show on white privilege. And that, that's a phrase that bugs a lot of people. And, uh, but, boy, he was really on it. He said, you know, this isn't even a real thing. It's not a true, true story. This is a, 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 a false construct. And on and on he went, right? But he gave an example that lifted the veil from my eyes. And I want to tell you the example. He said, my family grew up in Levittown, New York. And it was a hard scrabble life for all of us. We had no privilege. So I'm sitting there listening, right? And I've got my computer open and I don't know the story. So I Google Levittown, New York. I'm just interested because it's the example he gave of his own life, right? So I Google Levittown, New York. This is an interesting story. Back in the 20s, Abraham Levitt started this construction company. Father Abraham, he was a Jewish guy, and he started this construction company. And one of his sons, William, served in World War II, went, and they, they were home builders. They, his son, William, went to World War II, and he saw some new ways of building structures in the war. He saw different ways of going about building structures where they would, not prefab, I don't mean that, but like one design that could be duplicated multiple times, right? He came home and he told his dad, there's another way to build houses and there's a way to make more money, I promise you, right? So they built what was the first planned suburb in, the, in American history. Planned, first planned suburb, Levittown, New York, named after them, of course. Levittown, New York, you had six housing designs that you could pick from, and uh, this uh, uh, grew up to be this big urban housing development, right, and, um, or suburban housing development there at Levittown. They built several more of those around the country. Uh, the next one, the largest one of all, is right outside of Philadelphia, Levittown, Pennsylvania, which is still the largest planned, planned suburb in American history. Levittown, New York, had over 60,000 people uh, uh, in, in its initial building. Uh, but one of the fascinating things about Levittown, New York, was um, uh, they started this in 1946. Uh, the thing was is that you could not buy there unless you were white. And that included black soldiers. But Bill O'Reilly didn't tell that part. 
So a federal lawsuit ensued, right? And so the federal lawsuit came through and they said, hey, that's illegal. You can't actually do that, you know. But they had already, by the time the Supreme Court had ruled on it, they already had the housing covenants in place so that even though the federal courts had ruled that it was illegal to exclude people based on race, they had the covenants in place where you could not sell or rent or lease to anyone that wasn't white. So I'm thinking to myself, ah, come on, Bill, now wait a second. It may have been a hard Scrabble life, but at least you got to play Scrabble. <laughs> right? The fact that you say you had no privilege, but you're ignoring the fact that no one that wasn't white could live there, including black soldiers coming home from the war. How can you not see that? The first Levittown community that was integrated was 10 years, 11 years later in 1957 in Philadelphia. It was actually when the first family, first black family that moved in, it was the typical thing, you know, burning cross in the yard, firebombing, you know, uh, uh, rocks through the windows and all that kind of stuff. And also neighbors who were there to stand with them that said this is the way it should have been all along. So I thought to myself, Bill, you can have your opinion, but don't hide the history to make your point. Because that's not helping anyone. Now, some of you might remember uh, uh, James Meredith. James Meredith has the distinction that he was the first black student that integrated Ole Miss, okay, uh, which was the University of Mississippi in 1962, November of 1962. Well, uh, James Meredith was a nine-year veteran of the U.S. military. He'd been in the Air Force. He's an Air Force guy. And uh, had served in combat in Korea, nine-year veteran, comes home, goes to Jackson State University in Mississippi, uh, achieves a four-point average, and then applies to Ole Miss. But Ole Miss turns him down three times because they're not going to accept any black students at Ole Miss, even though, even though eight years earlier in 1954, uh, the uh, um, Supreme Court had ruled that you are not allowed to keep people out of a public school based on race. You remember this, right? Supreme Court decision, 1954. But eight years later, even though the rule of law was you can't do this, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this. At Mississippi, they were like, I won't use their exact wording because it, you don't want to say those words in a church, but basically it was we make our own laws down here. So we'll make whatever law keeps our way of life going, right? So James Meredith says, my president said that I could go to college, and I'm going to hold my president to it. So they send, you remember the pictures, 5,000 of his fellow soldiers come to escort him to go to class. Now think about that. So you say, well, I'm not comfortable with that thing, white privilege. What in the world is this? Let me help you with this. I can help. I, I am white privilege. So let me help. I am white privilege. You're white privilege? Well, your mom and dad's farm didn't get, uh, or your mom's farm didn't get running water and electricity till June of 1996. I am white privilege. We lived in a trailer when I was a kid. I'm white privilege. You say, well, how does that work? Let me help you think about how it works. Never in the history of my life have I wondered if I could go to a state university based on the color of my skin? Now, I could wonder about money, right? I could wonder about grades. 
right? But I never, ever, I always knew it won't be the color of my skin that keeps me out. James Meredith is a nine-year veteran in the military with perfect grades in his first two years of college. So the only, and he had the money, so the only thing that was keeping him out was what? The color of his skin. Think about the Woolworth sit-ins. Remember this famous, these famous sit-ins in the early 60s, right? 60s up through, like 1963 up through 64. You remember this? So think about this. If you're a poor white college student, if you could rub two nickels together, what could you do? Go in and get a cup of coffee. If you are the wealthiest black business owner in Charleston and you could have bought Woolworths, you still couldn't go in there and sit down and get a cup of coffee. So here's what's important. Now, this is very important. White privilege is not about how hard someone works, number one. Number two, white privilege has nothing to do with who suffers. White privilege has nothing to do with who's poor. That's not what it means. White privilege has to do with access, this is extremely important, access based on an acceptable skin color. That's all it means. Access based on an acceptable skin color. So if white churches decided that they wouldn't allow blacks to come, how could they decide that? Well, because their skin wasn't what? Keeping them out. You, you, see what, you see how that's functioning, right? So if my skin doesn't keep me out, but someone else's skin could keep them out, that's the difference. Access based on acceptable skin color. One of the preachers of the Church of Christ in Atlanta, uh, he just retired a few years ago from the Simpson Street Church of Christ where he preached for 50 Four years. Judge Andrew Hairston. Now, Judge Hairston uh, also, God, I keep, I keep forgetting some of these things. He's also an Air Force guy. Okay, there's a lot of you, right? Uh, 20 years in the Air Force and uh, retired as a colonel. He um, has nine degrees, nine, nine, two PhDs and a, a, a law degree, law degree. He was the first black bench judge in Atlanta, very first one. And uh, so I, I interviewed him one day. I went down there, we went out to lunch together, and I interviewed him. And I said, so what was that like? And he said, well, you know, it's just kind of thing that you were just always in the wrong color. So it just didn't really matter, you know, how many degrees you had or what you'd done. There was always that place where you were just the wrong color, and it was like that. A friend of mine, Dr. Jerry Taylor, that we're, I'm co-writing a book with right now, uh, Dr. Jerry Taylor told me this story. He grew up outside of Millington, Tennessee, and uh, coming into town, he said one of the things that was very difficult as a, as a young black child was I was walking into town with my father and my grandfather. And he said in the early 60s, you could walk into town, and any, any 10-year-old white boy could look at my hardworking, frugal, upstanding grandfather and tell him, get off the sidewalk. And my grandfather would have to say, yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Yes, sir. Because his life depended on it. That's a 10-year-old boy. Now, why could a 10-year-old boy yell at a grandfather? Let me ask you a question. <laughs> How many of you are raised in a household where 
backtalking anybody older than you might have, might have put you in an early grave. <laughs> I backtalked my father one and a half times. One and a half times in my life. One time I was, a, I was a 14 years old, and he told me we were switching school districts, and I said, that's not fair, and I'm sorry I said that. That was the halftime, right? The other time I was 19 years old, I'd stayed all night, out all night partying with my friends. I was supposed to be there in the morning to help hang a garage door, and I was a few minutes late. I pulled up into the driveway, and he looked at me, and he said, where have you been? Who knows why this came out of my mouth? I looked and I said, well, that's none of your business. And I turned to walk away. I, why would I ever say that? He kicked me so hard in the tail it knocked me to the ground. And he's over the top of me. And he's, I'll always be your business. Yes, sir. I'm 19. I backtalked my father one and a half times. How many of you grew up like that? Sure you did. So wouldn't it seem weird to be a little boy, so proud of your daddy and your granddaddy, and you're walking into town, and some little boy your age could yell at your granddaddy, get off the sidewalk, boy. And your granddaddy had to tuck his head and back away. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, sir. Do you get a different feel for what people mean by white privilege? It doesn't have anything to do with how hard your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents worked. My great-grandparents come up out of Oklahoma in the 1800s in the first big dust bowl. They made their way living up the Colorado line, Colorado-Utah line. You can still go over there to Saltwash Canyon. You can see a hole in the ground where my great-grandparents dug a hole in the ground for their first winter to live here. White privilege has nothing to do with resources. It's just access based on an acceptable color. George McLaurin was a 54-year-old man that already had his master's degree in Oklahoma. He was an Oklahoma native, wanted to go to Oklahoma University to get his law degree. Had to go to the federal Supreme Court to get, a, to, to get his case won. And when they finally looked him up online, George McLaurin, when they finally let him into the school, they put his desk out in the hallway. He could only be in class if he was out in the hallway and he had to look through a doorway to get instruction because they would not allow him to be in that classroom with white students. Now, do you get the feel for what I'm talking about? Does that help a little bit? See, the reason I think it's white people that it brushes up, up the wrong way when someone says white privilege is we're like, man, you don't know my family. You don't know my history. You don't know how hard my people worked. You don't know how much my people suffered. How many of you have kind of felt that way? It's okay to be honest. We're in church. Come on. It'll go faster if you're honest, right? So doesn't it feel like it rubs us the wrong way until we start listening to those stories and you're like, whoa, what? You mean a fellow Air Force guy that was nine years in combat duty and comes home in perfect grades, and the only reason he can't go to, to school is because the color that comes out the bottom of his fatigues is darker than mine? Well, what kind of a nation would do that? Well, the one we're living in, the one we love, the one we got to tell the truth about, Right? So when I listen to that, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, hey, I didn't finish the Bill O'Reilly story, did I? Okay, here's the thing. So I dig into this a little deeper. The Smithsonian uh, was going to do an exhibit called the American Dream. And you know what the exhibit was? A Levittown home. It was about home ownership. 
But who was cut out of that American dream in 1946? When they interviewed Abraham Levitt, you know what he said? He said, listen, I'm not a racist. We had two problems in America, racism and a housing shortage, and I can only solve one of them. So your son, William, that came home as a veteran, was on board with the decision that my fellow veterans with darker color skin don't get to live in the American dream. I hope that helps a little bit with this verbiage, because if the church is not going to look like the rupture, but the church is going to look like the healing restoration, we have to understand why this hurts. We have to understand the wounds of this kind of a thing. Does that help a little bit? So when you think about individual and shared, one of the things I began to notice was that people who had to pull together to overcome that privilege, they had more of a shared approach to life. Let me come back to that in a minute. Let's look up the Bible together. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This is, this is the most exciting uh, uh, text in Scripture. It's just amazing. One of them. As for you, now he's talking to the Ephesian Christians, but he's talking about how the Gentiles were, uh, who are now Christians. He said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is the first part of chapter 2. All, all the Christians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which uh, you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit is now at work in uh, those who are disobedient. I did this in my Bible. This is actually a picture of my Bible, okay? And I want you to notice something. Do you see all those pronouns up there? Do you see you, right? Well, had they asked some of us from the South, thank you. We could have helped. Every one of those is plural. Every one of them. Y'all. Read it differently. Look at this. As for y'all, y'all were dead in y'all's sins, in which y'all used to live and y'all followed the ways of the world. Can you imagine if we read it the way it was originally written? Do you remember that famous text? Oh, especially for people that grew up in Church of Christ, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How remember that? Guess what? Plural. Y'all need to work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling, not individual plural. Hmm. Well, all of us who used to live among them at one time, gratifying the nature, uh, cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we all were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us all, see, God is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we all were dead in our transgressions, it's by save, grace y'all been saved. And God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Before we moved on, God has already raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's by grace y'all have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not one of those is singular. So that's important for what comes next. Therefore, remember that you who are Gentiles by birth 
called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. You remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, boy, those are two gospel words, but now in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, who you who are once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Now, if you remember where we started this morning, what do we have in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Union. One humanity. What do we have after Genesis 3 and the rupture? What is his purpose in Christ Jesus? Yes, one new humanity. The healing of the rupture. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, right? He came and preached peace to you who are far away and preached to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens with God's people and all the members of you also and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So that the church becomes the temple of God. The temple of God in which God dwells by his spirit mirrors the union that was intended at creation. When we mirror that union, the world gets to see what God is doing in the world and the world has hope. Paul says he's not done. He says, chapter 3, well, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery that's now been made known to me by revelation, as I've written about briefly. He says, uh, in reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel... Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now, how many of you think it's important for us to share the gospel? What is supposed to happen through the gospel? That the one new humanity is restored and the rupture is done away with and God takes back what Satan took from him. We're members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. 
Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which, for ages past, was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. Back over here in Genesis 3, Satan thought that he got his throat around God's plan here, going to choke it out. He had union on earth, and, and Satan comes in and puts the rupture in the middle of it, and God says that through the church that God's wisdom is going to be made known to those powers and principalities. God's going to restore that union and this is his eternal purpose. Hmm. I want you to let that sink in. The church was part of God's eternal plan. Did you notice in, in Ephesians 3 that according to his eternal purpose, we need to be clear God never intended for there to be a world without the church. We're not a backup plan. We're not, we're not a fix for a vehicle that broke down. We're not a last-ditch effort to save something that went awry. The church is God's eternal purpose to show his wisdom that that union that he started with is the way it ought to be. It is shalom. What's a real church? A place to belong and then a place to become. So I want to show you our church. I thought I should introduce our church to you. Uh, in 1997, when we moved there, our church was probably 97 or 98% all people that were wrapped in my color. And what you need to bear in mind is even though we would say that we were welcoming all of the ways we went about doing church basically said that we, we, we like it the way it looks. But God had other plans, and God began to go to work. So one of the things that God uh, uh, made me pay attention to was the story of Jesus' birth. What happens at Jesus' birth? God comes into the world, right? Remember his name, Emmanuel, which means... Right, God with us, right? You know, you know how enjoyable it is to be at a, a conference where everyone knows their Bible. That's really a beautiful thing, right? And so, uh, Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? But have you ever thought about the extend, extended nativity story? Right, like Luke? So who does Luke's story start with? John the Baptist's parents. Remember uh, 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 his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth? And who does it end with? Anna the prophetess. Remember that? But do you remember all these characters? So you got Simeon. Remember Simeon? Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, the, the shepherds. You've got the wise men. Uh, you've got John the Baptist's parents. You've got Jesus and his, his uh, parents, right? So let's think about it. Oh, let's think about it. Let's think about diversity. So if you've got wise men coming from modern-day Iran, they have a different color skin than everyone else in the story. And think of how much money they've got. They've got enough money to make the trip, drop off gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and still have plenty of money to get home. And those of you that are familiar with the markets back then, twice in Egyptian history, myrrh traded higher than gold. So it wasn't like gold and then, oh, yeah, give them some perfume. 
I mean, it's all extremely expensive. So they are wealthy beyond belief. Let's think, let's think uh, 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 um, like uh, occupationally. You've got John the Baptist's parents that are both of the uh, priestly tribe, right? Uh, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then, of course, you've got these magi. And so they're white collar. Then you've got Jesus, you know, carpenter. They're blue collar. Then you've got the shepherds. They're no collar, right? So you've got white collar, blue collar, no collar. And the thing about family structure, right? So you've got John the Baptist's parents, this older couple that finally has a kid. You've got uh, Joseph and Mary. They're this young couple with this weird birth story that somehow she got pregnant by God. Right? Try to imagine. I mean, that story's sacred to us, but try to tell it then. Right? And then you've got a widow. Remember that? She was like 84. She'd been married for seven years, and then a widow, like the bulk of her life. You remember this? So you've got all different family structures. Think educationally. Think educationally. So here's what I started thinking. If we were going to look like the church of the nativity, we would have all that in it. Different education, different family structures, different colors of skin, different economics. Huh. So I thought we should become the church of the nativity. So I'll introduce our church. So uh, this is uh, uh, some of our church. This is kind of a funny story. Uh, We were serving with another church there um, in Atlanta, and they were expressing thanks to a group of people that were there. You see uh, me standing there. Hey, I've got the same shirt on in that picture I'm wearing today. Okay, and then my wife is next to us, one of our elders at this end, another couple there in the back, these three on this side, all servants in this. The lady I've got my arm on, one of our members. The lady right behind us in the blonde, she had been coming to our church for several years. She dropped out for like three years. She ends up at this event, and when we're taking this picture, she's like, wait, 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 I got to get in family pictures. We haven't seen her in three years. I was like, ah, come on, come on, come on, get in here, you know. Because I just thought to myself, somewhere in the back of her heart, she still feels like we're her family. I hope that keeps being nurtured, right? Um, uh, let's see. So, whoops. Uh, let me back up. So, uh, some of our young adult ministry, uh, more of our young adult ministry. Uh, let's see. Uh, children's ministry. There we go. More children's ministry, uh, youth group, part of the youth group going on a mission trip, uh, people doing vacation Bible school. Uh, whoop, there we go. More vacation Bible school. One of our young men. Did you guys see that Lipscomb ended up in the finals of the soccer tournament, not just basketball this year? That's one of our young men uh, right there. Uh, this is our senior citizens ministry here. Uh, That was a mission trip, and I look at my face, and I'm either being very theological or constipated, one of the two. I I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, But this is a mission trip uh, uh, in Honduras together. Uh, This is a group of our young leaders, and Chloe there has a way of finding her way into about any uh, picture, as does our granddaughter Mila. Uh, This is one of our elders on the left, and then hopefully one of our future elders on the right. Uh, they are hosting our annual Cinco de Mayo festival that raises money for uh, uh, youth missions. Um, how did I do here? <laughs> okay. And then I told you that we have a church full of lawyers. This is one of our newly minted lawyers uh, right here at his graduation. This is one of our elders leading my men's group that I'm a part of uh, every Tuesday morning. Uh, this is another one of our small groups here. Uh, this is one of our small groups taking care of our, one of our members who's uh, disabled. Uh, this is a small group birthday party. Now there's Chloe again. Uh, and then that was the Cinco de Mayo lunch after we found out how much we raised for youth missions. Uh, that was a good day. This is our preschool. This is fascinating. We have a preschool. We've had a preschool for over 30 years. 95% of the students in our preschool are from India. 95% of them. 
So I work with our local police department. And uh, so one of the questions that they asked was, you know, how do we have better engagement with the community? And I found out that several of our police officers, because our community pays better than some other communities, they drive over 50 miles to be police in our area. But that's a slight disadvantage, you can imagine, because they don't live there. They're unfamiliar, you know, with our, our folks. But some of our police officers were. One of them asked, well, where do, they, where do all these Indian people live? Where do they come from? And one of the other police officers said, in my apartment complex. <laughs> right in my apartment complex, right? And, uh, and then this is one of our ministers sharing the gospel with one of the men from India, one of the businessmen from India. Uh, this is my wife, Susan, and her friend, Varsha, just like Marsha. She's from India. She was baptized earlier this year, or last year, excuse me, and a uh, wonderful gift. This is our preschool staff, and so you kind of get a feel for them. Um, I told you about the Ruby Bridges Day, and uh, this is uh, Aminu Timberlake and his family, and they manned that station and shared the story those tremendous uh, young ladies. This is Ruby, of course, at uh, church there. This is a baby blessing. At, uh, we have two services, the first service and the second service. Uh, this is first service. Uh, and then something we do, I want you, uh, if you want to take a picture of this, this will be super helpful. One of the things we realized we needed to do for our members to know each other better was we follow this curriculum. It's called Be the Bridge. And all of these groups in our church come from uh, they're black, white, and Latino, and they come together in groups of about eight to ten people or a dozen. They spend nine sessions together going through this uh, Be the Bridge curriculum, and it helps tremendously to steer us through difficult conversations. So it's very, very helpful. Uh, this is a Be the Bridge group uh, at our house, uh, one of them, and then this is another one. Um, it's up to you how you do it, but we found if the men have a Be the Bridge group and a women have the Be the Bridge group, it actually works better if they're not co-ed. So maybe that's just us. Um, but it seemed like the conversation, oh, I, I should have said something here. Uh, see the lady here, the third one down on the, on the left side? See, see uh, my wife Susan there, you see Susan, the girl next to her? Susan met her in a grocery store. That lady's Muslim, and she's been coming to the Be the Bridge group because one of the things that just blows her mind is a church where black and white people get together and do life together. It has floored her. And she told Susan, she said, the thing that's hard for me to understand and explain is why I feel so much peace at your church. So she's in the Be the Bridge group. I just think that's interesting. That's Susan, my wife, and one of our other minister's wives, and they do a lot of the planning for Be the Bridge. Uh, this is a lot of our leadership at our church, uh, so uh, they're together. This is my family, so I'll tell you a little bit more about them uh, later, uh, I think. There, more family pictures, more coming. Um, this is our son on the right, and this is his best friend on the left. They were missionaries together in Russia. And then Lucas Strada in the middle was one of our preaching interns. Um, this is a family we're very, very close to, raised all of our kids together. Brian there is six foot ten. He had a brother six four, another brother six eight, and a brother another brother six nine. Brian's six ten. I asked Brian one time, I said, Were you ever my height? <laughs> he said, Yeah. He said, I think it was the seventh grade and it was for about a week. And uh, I was like, you're so awful. Uh, birthday celebration uh, together. Oh, this is a great story. Uh, this guy here on the right, Ernie, uh, you remember uh, for the first probably uh, seven or eight decades, no, six decades of the major American auto companies, no blacks were allowed to own dealerships. They were all excluded. It, it was only whites who could own a dealership. And then General Motors was the 
first one to offer a diversity program where they would allow blacks to own a dealership. And Ernie, right there on the right, was in that first class. Very first class where they allowed blacks to own a dealership, General Motors. Uh, this is his great niece with our granddaughter um, together. And then that's my wife with our granddaughter and then another little girl from our church. Uh, this is the wedding. Jerome got married this year. He got, or last year, he got married on the 29th of September. So the top is with my wife and our daughter-in-law, Whitney, and then Jerome and Susan and I, Jerome and I. That hug is a very meaningful father-son hug, but it's also a big deal because I had to tie a real bow tie, and it took us about half an hour. That was a victory hug uh, there. And then Jerome and our daughter, Amy, and then Amy and her new sister-in-law, Whitney, and then Chloe and Mila over here on the bottom left. Um, this here was fascinating. Uh, uh, it's always good when a white guy's under a light. <laughs> That's a thing. Okay. The guy in the middle is Dr. Gerald Durley. Dr. Gerald Durley uh, marched for, in several uh, marches with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Gerald, Dr. Durley and I met in Atlanta. He's done a lot to uh, help me understand the history of things. Over here is our daughter-in-law's grandfather. What was fascinating is at the wedding, they started comparing notes, found out they both marched in some similar uh, marches together. So that was fascinating. This is the guy I talked about. See there, Dr. Andrew Harrison, the guy with the nine degrees and the 20 years in the uh, uh, Air Force? That's him right there. And the city of Atlanta honored him with a historic marker right out in front of the Simpson Street Church of Christ for his work as a judge, his work in the community, and 54 years at the same church. Um, this here is fascinating. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, let's see. Okay, you see where I'm sitting, right? Uh, here in the front row. Go to my, go this way, left, go left, my right in the picture, go left. Uh, two people. Uh, Emmanuel White, he and I are friends, and he said, I want to start a men's um, leadership uh, uh, conference in Dallas. And uh, I want to help young black men to be able to. Uh, uh, learn how to integrate business and their church life, their home life. And so we created a conference that was intended for anyone that wanted to come. But he wanted to make sure that the conference made it clear that we wanted young black men to come. Well, one of the things that's very difficult, that's been very, very difficult for us, is to find white people that want to come. You have a little trouble picking out the white folks in that group? Right? Well, I'm there. So I've been there the last uh, 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 10 years. But uh, there's people there who's worse, uh, from Bermuda. So there's about 15 guys there that come from Bermuda every year, uh, come over, people from all over. One church in Houston, uh, the Fifth Ward Church, sent 50 of their men to spend three days uh, for uh, spiritual training and discipleship. This here is a program we work with in Atlanta called Better Together. Uh, this is with um, Bernice King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. We work in this plan together. A year ago this week, we were at the 50th anniversary in um, Memphis. One of our elders went with us, uh, Kelly Brown, and uh, to this um, community celebration. Uh, there again, I found the light. I don't know how in the world I do this. But the mayor of Atlanta knows about our church, and she is fascinated with it. She wants to know how it is that a group of white and black and brown people have enjoyed life together in church. 
she wants to know. So she asked me if I would come and join a clergy panel to try to explore how we can do that in the community. So you hear what she's interested in? How did what happen in your church, how could you spread that out in the community a little bit? I think that's a good thing. I think it's nice when the, when the, when the, when the church is, is helping lead like that. I told you that I was involved with the police department. So we have a, a program that we launched in Atlanta called One Cop. And this is uh, one, ch- the COP stands for uh, one church per, c- per precinct. So every, every precinct has a church that's associated with it. The guy that started this uh, is a former policeman, a retired policeman. And he said, one of the things that has changed is because we do most of our patrolling in cars with our windows rolled up, we don't know the community. And when you don't know the community, bad things happen. You know what he said that was fascinating? He said, our best chance of getting to know the community and the community getting to know us is through the local I was all over that. I was so excited about that unfolding for us. Another thing we're a part of is uh, Business League. You might recognize the uh, white gentleman standing there with the suit and tie. He's the CEO of Delta Airlines, Ed Bastian, a wonderful Christian man. And uh, this is a, a business development luncheon that happens every year in Atlanta. And uh, so we go to that. One of our members, the guy that was the General Motors guy, he was honored for his work in the Atlanta uh, Business District. What's fascinating is even though things started the way they started for Ernie, when you look at his, uh, the people that own his dealerships, white, black, and brown. His Christian faith pours out into how he makes business decisions. Even though on the front end he was excluded, he knows what Christ is all about. And he's making sure that that pours through in his business. So I wanted you to see that, and now I want you to think about this. We're going to close here. How many of you recognize this? Right? If you had art appreciation, (laughs) right? So this is Leonardo da Vinci's um, Vitruvian Man. Do you know why it's called that? Because Vitruvius was an architect. We have some architects here today because I met them. They were here earlier. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, okay, so it, what's fascinating, he is the only architect from antiquity whose architecture books uh, uh, remain to this day. He's the only one. And uh, he's still studied to this day. Uh, Vitruvius, uh, this is what he wrote. He served as a military engineer to Julius Caesar, wrote the 10 volume architecture uh, dedicated to Caesar. Uh, the only one from ancient times was still published into the 20th century. He's the guy that put together these. Uh, designations. You might remember that from our appreciation. Different kinds of... Uh, so the Doric, the Ionic, and the Corinthian. Now here's what's fascinating. He's the one that wrote the history and details of the Corinthian order column. He's the guy that did it. And these architects had orders. Uniform conditions. You might see where we're making a turn here. That had to be met. In Epidaurus, Greece, I've been there. In the middle of Epidaurus is a holy place called the Tholos. This is where they put their most holy scrolls. This is where they put any sacred images. The Tholos was the most holy place. In Epidaurus, this is the original one. This is the original of Tholos. This is what it looked like when they started restoring it when we were there on one of our trips. In that Tholos, they found this. In the Holy of Holies, where they keep their most sacred documents, Every sacred image, they found this. 
a Corinthian column capital. That's what they found. Right there in Epidaurus, you can see under it, you can read and you can see. Archaeologists thought, what in the world was that doing there? But what they surmised was that all future architects in Epidaurus would have this to build off of. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Scripture. Paul says, we are co-workers in God's service. You're God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a master builder. Someone else is building on it. Each one should build with care. You see this wise master builder? That's what it looks like in Greek, and you can make it out. Sophos, wise, architectone. Paul says, as a wise architect, I laid a foundation. For there is no foundation than than what's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, literally stubble in the original Greek, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to, to light. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So back up one. So gold and silver costly stones might come out one way. Wood, hay, or stubble might not survive the fire so well. Which one are we going to build with in the church today? If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, real quickly, we're going to translate this southern just like the Greek. Don't you know y'all are God's temple? Over in chapter 6 and verse 20 where it says you're the temple of God, your body, it's singular there. Here it's plural. Y'all are God's temple. Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, that place that Paul told the Ephesians rises up as one humanity, anyone who destroys that, what is that? That's the rupture. God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And y'all together are that temple. Hmm. So what are the Corinthian conditions? Love is patient, and it's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not easily angered. Wouldn't that be something in our age of flash anger? In our age where to get likes on the Internet, you got to post some outrageous expression Right? Have you noticed that the news cycle just seeks to keep us stirred up? Just stir it up, stir it up. And if we like a particular network, you know who we blame for all the stirring? The other network. They're the problem. But if they on that, if they like that network, then who's the problem? The other network. Isn't that fascinating? Who's the problem? Well, the people that don't agree with me, they're the problem. If everyone would just get on the ball and realize how right I am, love isn't easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. We're almost, we're almost professionals. We've got a doctor's degree in keeping a record of wrongs. Well, why did you do that? Well, what do you mean why did I do it? Look at you. 
think it's fascinating. This may be a little offensive to you, but I think it's fascinating. Every time someone who is a minority asks to, to pay attention to police brutality, what do white people almost always do? We almost always jump on what? Black on black crime. As if, as if black on black crime is any different than white on white crime. Which statistically, there's more white on white crime statistically, percentage-wise, than black on black crime. Why do we do that? Well, according to this, love is part of the issue. So, what do we do at home? How do we handle something like that that can be so volatile? If somebody says something that stirs me and makes me probably be easily angered or keep a record of wrongs, I have had to learn to say, tell me more. Tell me more. Because eventually, I might get to the bottom of it. How about you? So you noticed my family, right? So you noticed that four of our children are wrapped in lighter color skin, and one of our children is wrapped in a darker color skin. Well, we met our son Jerome when he was 12 years old. I had come to Atlanta with his grandmother. They were escaping violence in Florida, where he was born, and um, came to Atlanta. They lived in the U-Haul truck that she escaped in with her son and her, her grandson. For about two weeks, they lived out of the back of a U-Haul truck. Then they found some missions that they could stay in, the Atlanta mission, stayed in that for some uh, uh, weeks. And eventually, after a few months, they were able to find a place in the Salvation Army where our son Jerome said, you know, we finally got to a place where we felt safe after these several months. A man from our church that ran, drove a limo uh, saw Jerome one night sitting at a real popular place called Underground Atlanta, and he went over and he met him. And he invited Jerome to go to church with him. And he started taking Jerome to go to church. He studied the Bible with him. Eventually, Jerome became a Christian, was baptized. And then he wanted to take Jerome to a church where there was an active youth group, and he knew he would fit in, which was our church. But Jerome's black. So Jerome starts coming to church. That's when we met him. He was 12. Uh, he became best friends with our son Aaron. So they become best friends. Well, a few years later... Uh, this guy reaches out to us, and he says, could Jerome stay with you for a while? We're like, sure. He's there a lot anyway, right, at the house. And then after I said that, I called him back, and I said, why are you asking? And he said, well, because he's been staying with me. Why is he staying with you? Because his grandmother's become abusive. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, later on, we found out that his grandmother had dementia. How many of you have known someone that had dementia? You may have seen what he was experiencing, Right? So he stays with us. Well, one of our sons comes in, our fourth son, and he said, Dad, you realize Jerome doesn't need a place to stay. He needs a family. Oh, okay. So we start getting to know Jerome a little bit. He starts telling a little bit of his story. Uh, he hadn't been in school, and part of the reason he wasn't in school is because he and his uncle, because of his grandmother's condition, they had to work full time in order to pay the rent on the apartment where the three of them lived. So he had to drop out of school to work full time to pay the rent. So eventually they moved in with us and uh, we worked it out that we could help still pay the rent so she would have a safe place to stay until she passed away. Jerome was living with us and after a while he started calling us mom and dad, which was just fine. And then one day we went on this retreat together 
and uh, for, with our church, and we were supposed to write letters to each other about what it meant to be family. All three of us in our sealed letters mentioned adoption. And so I said to Jerome, I said, well, first of all, you don't have to be adopted in order to have a place in this family. You're your own man. You didn't become a man the day you met this family. You upgraded our family. We didn't upgrade you. Nobody's saving anybody here. We're just falling in love, and God is helping us fall in love. But if you would like to be adopted, we would like that. And he said, I would like that too. And I said, now here's another thing. You don't have to take our family name. You already have a name. Name doesn't make a man. Man makes a name. He thought about it for about six months. He was very close to my father, so he had tons and tons of conversations with my dad about this. He finally came back six months later during summer break, and he said, I've thought about this, and I want to take the family name. I said, tell me about that. He said, I want to take the family name because I don't know where my family name comes from, and I want a name that I know where it comes from. I said, okay. So we go down to the Fulton County Courthouse, and we're sitting there, and the judge is staring at us. And this is a little unusual for a lot of reasons, right? So the judge looks at our kids and says, well, how do you all feel about getting a new brother? And one of our sons said, he's not a new brother. He's been our brother a long time. This is a formality, right? Judge kind of smiled, took a picture with us, and out the door we went. Well, this initiated for me a little bit of a different perspective on some things. So bear in mind, he's got our last name. So what's on his driver's license? McLaughlin, like everyone else. So they're up by a high school in our area, Centennial, and they get pulled over. Now our son Caleb is driving. Policeman says, license plate light is out. License plate light is out. And uh, pulls him over. Our son Caleb is driving, but the only one that ends up in the patrol car is Jerome, being questioned. But he wasn't driving. He's sitting in the back seat. Jerome's kind of a quiet guy. So his brothers are trying to say, we're, we're brothers. Look at the driver's licenses. He's not having it. Finally, he lets Jerome get back into the car, warns them to get that light fixed, no citation. I thought that was weird. Now, why was it weird? Well, it was weird to me, okay? And I thought maybe it was a one-off. About two years later, Jerome calls me. He's been getting pulled over, over in Cobb County. He's on his way to see one of his childhood mentors. Gets pulled over. He's in a suit and a tie. This is a very special event he's going to with one of his childhood mentors. And um, he calls me, and he said, I'm getting pulled over, but I don't know what for. And he leaves his phone on in his vest pocket so I can hear everything that's happening. It's raining cats and dogs outside. Policeman tells him to get out of the car. I didn't know this, but uh, obviously you do. A policeman can't search your car uh, without a warrant, but if they bring in a canine unit, they can. I didn't know that. They made him wait, brought in a canine unit. Dog goes all through the car. Finally, I'm listening. Jerome is trembling. And finally, Jerome, in a very respectful voice, says, what did you pull me over for? And as clear as a bell, the policeman in Cobb County says, don't you know you don't belong here, boy? Now, you got to bear in mind, this is like probably 2009, 2010. So now I'm getting a different view of things, okay? You understand what I'm saying? I'm just seeing it through a different set of lenses. So then, a few years later, uh, Jerome ends up at our house uh, at about 2.30 in the morning. Uh, The tall guy, Brian, the tall guy, Brian plays professional ball in Europe. 
he was home and he has an apartment in Dunwoody where we live during the summer and he coaches Pan Am uh, leagues and, and uh, referees Pan Am leagues. So he's down at the Coliseum. Because he lives overseas, he doesn't have a car in Atlanta. So Jerome went down to pick him up. They all grew up together. They're on their way back up, coming through our town. They get pulled over by a policeman. And uh, so a policeman comes up, wants to know what they're doing. Well, Jerome lives right there. His apartment's right there. Brian's apartment's down the street. And he says, we live here. Uh, why did you pull me over? He said, we smell something. Smell something? Smell what? Well, I think we smell marijuana. Well, you didn't smell it when you were in your car and we were in our car. And no one smokes weed. It's not, it's not legal where we live. <laughs> Just teasing. Okay, okay. But... So then they have him get out of the car. Well, Jerome's 6'1". Brian is 6'10". As soon as they have him get out of the car, they handcuff them behind the back of the car and call in two cars for backup. Now, these are two Christian young men, wonderful young men. One of them lives in an apartment not 200 yards from where he's pulled over. The other one about a quarter of a mile away. They bring in these two officers. Finally, they get to the end of it. And... Um, they show them their driver's licenses. Of course, Brian's doesn't have his current address, but Jerome's does. No citation again. So this time, I feel like I'm seeing something enough that if I ignore it, I'm participating in it. So we have a very good relationship with the city, as you can imagine, with our work with the police department and so on. So I call the mayor pro tem. Not the mayor, but his assistant. And we have a good relationship. And I said, could you drop by the office? He said, yes. He comes by my office. When he comes by my office, I welcomed him to any height. And he's our mayor now. He's our mayor now. And I said, I want you to look at my family picture, and I want you to look at, get a hard look at it, because all of those are my children. I want you to look at it carefully. And I told him the story I just told you. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to have the opportunity to make this right. And if you don't, my next call is to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution because I'm tired of this. I'm done with this. He said, well, I'll have the police chief call you. I said, you don't have your police chief call me. You have your officers call my son. To his credit, he did. And one of the officers met him at a gas station, not far from where he pulled him over. He apologized. He said, man, look, I'm, I was the youngest guy out there. I just, I didn't know what else to do. I'm sorry. And I respect him for that. I do. I respect him for that very much. And I serve with our police. I respect our police. That's not the issue. You understand how silly it is to put black lives against blue lives when many of our police people are black? You understand that doesn't make any sense, right? What, are we going to love the blue half of a black man? You see how weird that sounds? That's not the issue. It's a systemic problem that a person wrapped in my color just didn't see over the wall until I could see it through the lens of my son. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You see, if we live like this, the scenarios I just described 
will starve for a lack of oxygen. In a culture that lives like that, that kind of action starves out. And you know what God says? I didn't commission the government to do this. I gave this special divine task to the church. Wow. So there's four things that love does always. And here's something fascinating. In 1 Corinthians, the only word that's repeated four times in this verse is always. You could have added more things that love always does. The point is, is that love always does it. So love doesn't unhook when it gets hard. Love doesn't unhook when people say things that we don't know what to do with or that make us feel uncomfortable. Love doesn't unhook when politics kind of rub up against each other and not in a great way. Love can always protect, always trust, always hope, always endure. You can imagine in a church that looks like ours, politics are all over the map. Can you imagine that? I mean, seriously, can you imagine that? Politics are all over the map. But you can't figure out our politics based on the color of people's skins. Not all of the Republicans in our church are white, and not all of the Democrats in our church are black. And you know what? That was a foolish acquiescence to the author of the rupture, Satan, to categorize people that way. Why would we do that? Why would we assume that everyone can be categorized so simply? How many of you don't like it when people try to put you in a box? Pigeonhole you, right? So if we could, we're going to actually be able to close a little early today. What I'd like you to consider, if we could wrap this up together, would be this. We're made in the image of God, and God loves his union with us. But that union was ruptured by God's enemy and our enemy. From before the time of creation, before the rupture, God planned an eternal purpose that through the second Adam, the church would be launched, and through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So how it's meant to be starts right now. So when you look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 and around the throne is every tribe, every nation, every tongue, God says, you understand, that's not just then. I want the church to be a foretaste of glory divine because you're an heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is our story and this is our song. Amen. So I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you for taking the time to consider these things. We've covered a lot of ground, and it, it, it just takes a lot of thought to work on these things, right? But it's worth it because we're joining God in such an exciting vision for the world. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.